All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Thank you. Yes, I cut my hair. Get it all out now so we don't have to talk about it later. I cut my hair. It's good. I'm not cutting the beard. I'm not giving in any more peer pressure. Okay, you guys are pressuring me to cut my hair. Broncos fan right there. Look at that. Sixth row. All right. Um, Okay, enough about that. Listen, I want to recommend a resource to you as we are reading. Ooh, almost spilled my water. As we are reading through the New Testament together, uh, I want to give you some, some resources. Sometimes you're, you're reading the New Testament, you come across a verse like, what is this? What does it mean? And what's the context for that? And who is that guy? And what's going on? And what is that word? This is a resource that's been uh, incredibly helpful to me over the years. It's called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. I want to recommend this to you and our Ventura campus as well. This is probably the single most used commentary by me uh, in my life of studying the Bible. There's nothing I've used more frequently in my personal study and preparing to teach scriptures in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. So there's also an Old Testament uh, set, but this is a New Testament one. This will be really a help to you if um, you don't always understand the scriptures, and I don't always understand the scriptures. Sometimes you just need a little help with context, dating, stuff like that. Recommend this to you. We have it available at the Ventura and Carpinteria campus. Cool? By the way, Ventura campus is joining us, and we love them very much. Let's let them know how much we love them. And Matthew chapter 2. Open up to Matthew chapter 2. We're in the book of Matthew together. We're in the second chapter. We're going to do the whole chapter today. The whole chapter. We're picking up the pace. There's 28 chapters, man. We've got to get moving here. All of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be talking about kingdoms in conflict. Kingdoms in conflict, which is what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. I'm reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible. We're going to read the whole thing. Okay, it's rather lengthy, 23 verses, but we're all big people in here. We can handle this, right? We, we can do this. 23 verses of Matthew chapter 2. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what was, what, excuse me, has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for regions, the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in your word this morning. We believe it to be inerrant and infallible, the very word of God, true in all that it teaches and asserts. And and we place ourselves under your word today. Your word is the only rule and authority in the church for our lives and for what we believe and and how we are to live. So we ask that today your word and its message would become clear to us. Thank you for the way your word reveals and is revealing through Matthew Christ to us. May our lives be more and more centered around the person and the kingdom of Jesus. Would you teach us to seek first his kingdom and its righteousness? Please, Lord, now help me to teach and preach in a way that's faithful and helpful to these brothers and sisters. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good job reading all 23 verses together and maintaining attention. Wonderful job. Matthew has much to tell us here about Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, he's wanting to inform us and all the readers that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel and the whole world who would bring God's promised universal blessing and righteous rule to earth. And so Matthew's been talking about this in different ways. He started in chapter 1 by telling us who Jesus was, by informing us about what preceded his birth, his ancestry. Right, going back to Abraham and David. And then in the second part of chapter 1, he gave us the unique conditions surrounding Christ's birth, the virgin conception and, and the incarnation. And now he's giving us an even broader picture by sharing with us the events that followed the birth of Jesus and these kingdoms coming into conflict. So he tells us about these magi, 
who came from the east and that they saw a star and they followed the star, having somehow discerned from the star that a king had been born in Israel. And so looking for a king in Israel, where else would you go? But Jerusalem, of course. So they go to Jerusalem and they begin to inquire. And it says in verse two there that they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Magi, star, revelation of a king, a search. Interesting stuff, but not the point of the chapter. So I'm going to leave it there. Whole books written about the Magi and the star. Who might they be? Were they wise men? Were they rulers? Were they kings? They were from the east. Where was the east? Gosh, could have been anywhere east of Jerusalem. What about the star? Did the star really stop over the house where Jesus was? How were they led by the star? How did they know from the star? Interesting stuff, not the point. Whole books written, you ought to get them and you ought to read them. What I want to draw our attention to is something that comes to us in verse 3. The fact that Herod was troubled when he heard about the birth of this king. It says that Herod was troubled. And he had pretty strong reactions to it. Now this Herod is Herod the Great, whom we know from history and whom we know from Scripture. As you're reading through the New Testament this year, you will encounter a few different Herods. This is the first one, Herod the Great. He dies in this chapter, and then he has some sons. Uh, Herod Archelaus, whom we already met toward the end of this chapter. Herod Philip, Herod Antipas. You get some of them in the Gospels and some of them in the book of Acts. Paul will stand before one of them. One of them will die in the book of Acts. Lots of Herods in the New Testament. But this is Herod the Great. And by all measures, he was great. He was established as king in Israel in about the year 40 BC, a sort of a vassal king. He wasn't a real king. He wasn't a descendant of David. He wasn't an heir to that throne. He wasn't a real king in Israel, but he was placed there by the governing authorities in the world, Rome. And he was meant to keep the peace in a region that was difficult to keep the peace. The Jews had great ideas of nationalism. They had religious ideals and ideas that were in conflict with Roman ideals and ideas. And so they needed a strong leader in Israel. And Herod was their guy. Herod was a strong leader. He was able to keep relative peace in the land for about 37 years. And he did all sorts of building projects. When you take a tour of Israel, you'll go around and you'll see these aqueducts and these old buildings, even the ruins of the second temple there and all these different things that were built up in ancient Israel. And you say, wow, where did that come from? Herod the Great built that. Wow, what about that? That was Herod the Great. What about this? Herod the Great. How did he do all that? Herod had many slaves. But Herod got a lot done during his 40 years or so reigning. Herod was a powerful king, he was a productive king, and Herod was a ruthless king. He was very cunning. The Caesars of Rome saw him as a master politician. He knew how to rule, he knew how to get his way, he knew how to work things. Jesus would later on call him a fox. And he was incredibly ruthless. When he felt he was threatened and his rule and his reign were threatened, he would do whatever it is he needed to do. In fact, later on in his life, he executed many of his sons and their mothers because he felt that they threatened his rule and his reign and his sovereignty. 
In fact, Caesar Augustus once said of Herod the Great, you would be better off to be one of his sows than one of his sons. Your life expectancy was greater as a source of his pork than it was as an heir to his throne. Ruthless guy. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, which I just recommended to you a few moments ago, speaks a little bit about this and the context of our passage. It says, It's no surprise that King Herod was disturbed when the Magi came to Jerusalem looking for the one who had been born king. Herod was not the rightful king from the line of David. In fact, he was not even a descendant of Jacob, but was a descendant from Esau and thus was an Edomite. If someone had been rightfully born king, then Herod's job was in jeopardy. Now we see the big picture of Matthew chapter 2. One had been born a king that jeopardized the rule, the reign, the power, and the sovereignty of the existing so-called king. When Jesus was born, it created great conflict. This picture being the main point of the chapter was telegraphed to us in verse 1 when it said Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Remember, Matthew's been building his case. He's presenting Jesus as the promised, expected Messiah the king. And now he says, and this Messiah the king was born during the reign of Herod the great. And everyone would go, ooh. They see a fight brewing. He offers more proof to us in this chapter when he talks about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies about a ruler over Israel in verse 6. You remember that's quoted there, and that's a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written in the 8th century before Christ. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Herod had a sense of what was coming. When he heard that these magi came from the east and were asking about a king, he got together his religious advisors there in verse 4 and said, okay, this king, this expected king of Israel, where is he going to be born? And that's when they told him, well, the, the, the scriptures say Bethlehem, so that's what we can expect. And he took his action in Bethlehem. He had an idea that the scriptures were right. So it's not that Herod didn't know who Jesus was. It's that Herod didn't like the implications of Jesus for his life. Apparently from the text, he didn't doubt the identity and his rightful claim to kingship. He just didn't like what it meant for his own reign and identity and kingship. And so Herod sought to destroy this new king. Herod sought to kill Jesus. We read that again, starting in verse 12. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. When they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So the gist of the story is evident. God is at work. And what God is doing is coming in conflict with the king of the land. God's kingdom is breaking in with the coming of his promised king. And that's creating conflict with the one whom viewed, who viewed himself as king. 
The gist of the story is two kingdoms that come into conflict, that of Herod and that of Jesus. And you say, so what 2,000 years ago? Well, this situation remains unchanged today. In a macro sense, in a sense that spans over time, don't we realize that we live in the midst of two opposing kingdoms? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. We get that, right? The kingdom of God, when we speak of kingdom, we're speaking of rule. The rule of God extended in this world through the work of Christ and the rule or the way or the kingdom of this world are in conflict to one another. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, so to speak, are opposite in values and how they view justice and how they view leadership and how one might be saved. There are opposing views. We live in the midst, like the original hearers, of two kingdoms in conflict. James spoke about it, as he has a tendency to do, in stark terms. James said, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why did he call them adulteresses? It was Christians who were fooling around with the things of the world. That's why he employs that phraseology. Now, what does he mean by world? He doesn't mean things that we necessarily like, like four by fours and surfboards and flowers and puppy dogs and good food and coffee and all these things. The idea is the world system that is opposed to God and God's way of ruling. That's the idea. And the picture that emerges from the verse is that we find ourselves caught in the two and we sometimes have one foot in the kingdom of the world and one foot in the kingdom of God and we're flirting with the kingdom of the world. You adulteresses. Don't you know that you can't play both sides? There's opposing kingdoms here. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. It's powerful, oppositional sort of language. John, one of James's buddies, would further say, do not love the world, or maybe even his brother, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Okay, same idea. It's not talking about surfing and all this other stuff that we love. It's this world system that's opposed to God. The idea of love there doesn't mean don't enjoy certain things. It's agape. It means don't value supremely. Don't find your identity. Don't put your hope in things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. There again, we have that language, this fleshing out of what you see here in Matthew chapter two, that with the coming of the promised king, Jesus, and the associated kingdom, there comes conflict between these two kingdoms, Herod and Jesus, the world and the kingdom of God. And we often get caught in the battle and we truly are in a battle for our allegiance, for our attention, for our way of being. That's why Jesus had to say in John chapter 17, listen, here's the deal, Christian. You are in this world, but you're not of this world. It's a different kingdom. It's of a different quality. It's of a different nature. You're in it, but don't forget, you're not of it. 
Paul would come along and say, let's remember that our citizenship is in heaven. That we are members of the kingdom of heaven. Peter would say it this way. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, look at the language, as aliens and strangers, members of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There's the call, the recognition that we are in this world, but we're not of this world. There's a greater claim on who we are. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So live like citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not citizens of the world. That means in this world, you're aliens and you're strangers. There's two kingdoms. And they are in opposition to one another. And we sometimes all the time, find ourselves in a battle for allegiance, for attention. What's going to grab our passions? Which direction are we going to go in? But one of the biggest, biggest, excuse me, oppositions to the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. In a personal sense, Christ the King is always confronting our false claims of kingship. There's a picture here to be pondered. Herod was not the real and rightful king. We learned that already. He was instilled by Rome. He wasn't a descendant of David. He was not the real and rightful king. There there was reason for his assumed kingship. The world was telling him, look, you're the king. You're the man, we're giving you the power, you can do it, you're awesome. But he wasn't the real king. There's a picture there that we need to think about. Because don't we hear the same messages sometimes from culture? Look, you're the man, we're giving you the power, you're awesome, you should do what you want, you should get where you want, you're like a king, dude, you're the boss. And we take on this persona. And what happens when we begin to follow Jesus is that Christ the King lovingly confronts day in and day out our own false claims of kingship. False claims of kingship. That's what we're doing when we choose to sin. We're playing king. We put on our little make-believe crowns and we play to be king. When we choose to sin, we're putting off the rule of Christ the King. We're putting down the standards of the kingdom of heaven. We're pushing aside his rule and his reign extended to us. And we're saying, I want my rule and my reign. I want my way. How dare you try to impede on the sovereignty of my own sexuality with this thing, the Bible? How are you going to tell me about generosity and what to do with my money? I'll be my own king as it comes to my money. In some of the most key areas of life, we like to make believe that we are kings. This is what was happening in the garden. There were Adam and Eve, and the garden was beautiful, 
and they were naked and unashamed. Good times. Satan comes along and endeavors to do two things. You remember that God had told Adam and Eve, listen, here's a garden. Every tree in the garden you may eat from, except for the tree in the middle, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat from that one. Every other one you could eat from. I can imagine Adam and Eve going, this is great. All the other ones, but just that one. We can do that until Satan comes along. And Satan does two things. He endeavors to cast aspersion on the intent and the character of God, the intent of God or the word of God. He comes along to Eve and he says, did God really mean? Is that what the Bible really means about sexuality? Is that what it really means about our finances? Is that what it really means? Did God really say is what Satan said to her? He cast doubt upon the intent, the will, the word of God, and then he cast doubt on God's character. Satan said to Eve, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows when you do, you'll be like him. A sovereign, a king, a ruler. And that's all Eve needed to hear. Wait, I can call the shots? I can have my own reign, my own rule. I can be my own sovereign. Well, she took and she ate. When she saw that the fruit was delightful to the eyes and good to eat and able to make her wise, that she could be like God, she took and she ate and she gave to Adam and they took and they ate. And that was the first make-believe king and queen. And humanity ever since has been endeavoring to buck the rule, the reign, the sovereignty of God. And that's what we do as members of the kingdom. When we choose to sin and not obey Christ, we're pushing off his rule in certain areas. Now listen to me. To be a member of the kingdom of God is to believe that Christ is the king, which is to say we're not the king's. To say Christ is the sovereign. We're not the sovereign. I mean, that's how you get into the kingdom. Romans 10.9, which is a salvific passage, says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, same idea as king, sovereign, ruler, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul said in Philippians about Jesus, For this reason also God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the very nature of Christianity informs us that we don't reign. That's the problem that's in the text, is there was a threat to the reign of Herod. And Herod, we see, was willing to go to great lengths at great cost to protect his reign. I mean, he sent his guys to Bethlehem and the surrounding area to kill every male child under the age of two. I mean, that's horrific. 
Herod was willing to go to great lengths at great cost to protect his reign. The garden, the rebellion there. Adam and Eve went to great lengths at great cost to try to gain a reign. So a point of reflection for us right now would be, in what areas of our lives are we trying to gain reign or assert our own rule, be our own kings? Where are we trying to do that? You know, as Christians, we say Christ is Lord. Jesus is the king. But we live in the tension of these opposing kingdoms. And the biggest make-believe king of the day is me, you, us. And when we choose sin, we're asserting our kingship over the kingly authority of Jesus. So in what areas of our lives, we ought to ask ourselves, are we playing king right now? in refusing the righteous rule of Christ, locking out his reign, his will as sovereign. And then we ought to ask ourselves, are we willing to pay the price that that will undoubtedly incur for us? I mean, Eve's quest for a reign cost us much. The scripture is full of stories such as Herod where the assertion of one's own sovereignty has cost them much. And isn't that so much of my life story that me pretending to be king has cost me and those whom I love a lot? And isn't that true for many of us? So in those areas of our lives right now where we find ourselves pretending to be kings, we need to know that Christ is lovingly in his mercy confronting false claims of kingship. Why are you trying to rule in that area? Why are you wanting to reign there? Why are you locking your sovereign out here? To begin to identify those places, think soberly on what those decisions might cost us. I mean, Herod was willing to kill babies so that his rule was not interfered with. And sometimes our assertions to kingship cost us our marriages, our parenting, our relationships. What we need to know is that when kingdoms are in conflict, we have a choice. We see this in the text. There are two responses to this conflict. There was the response of Herod, the conniving king, and there was the response of the magi, the worshiping wise men. There's two different responses to the coming of Jesus the king. Both parties were extravagant in their pursuits. Herod was willing to do whatever it took to have an uninterrupted reign. The wise men were willing to leave the place from wherever they were powerful and influential, travel and spend and be spent to find the one who is truly king and worship at his feet. Listen, in our daily lives, when we live in the tension of kingdoms and conflict, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world, we always have a choice to become the conniving, make-believe kings 
or to become the wise worshipers like the Magi. And to be a Christian, by definition, is to be joyfully submitted to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus and Messiah. That's what it is to be a Jesus follower, to be joyfully submitted to the kingship of the Messiah. In fact, it is, by definition in Scripture, the only way to live in the kingdom. The kingdom is presented to us as God's rule. It started in the garden. It was entrusted to Israel. Israel didn't quite pull it off, extending God's rule in the world. Christ came, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into this world. And now he is extending his rule by the work of his Holy Spirit through his people. One day Christ will come again and his rule will become manifest on earth for all to see. But we might speak generally of the kingdom in terms of the extension of the rule of the king. Now follow me then. The Christian is someone who joyfully submits to the rule of the king. To submit to the rule of the king is the only way to live in the kingdom. Now I want you to pay attention because I'm going to say something and if you misunderstand me, you'll develop some false theology. So listen very carefully. We enter this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, here and now. We enter this kingdom through forgiveness. No misunderstanding there. The only way to enter the kingdom is to be rescued, delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. Forgiveness through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us in our place to pay the price for our sins. We enter the kingdom through forgiveness. Listen carefully now. We dwell in the kingdom through obedience. Here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that when we fail to obey, we're kicked out of the kingdom. That's not what the gospel has to say. That's not even the terms in which the gospel speaks of. We enter the kingdom through forgiveness, but we dwell in, we live in, we experience, we pursue, we are faithful members of the kingdom through obedience. Our obedience never got us in. We were disobedient. We got in through the grace of God on the cross of Jesus Christ, him dying in our stead. But now that we're in the kingdom, we are meant to dwell there in obedience. You understand this. You get this. If, if we're in the kingdom of heaven now, under the kingship of Christ, it would only make sense that we endeavor to live under his rule and his reign, his ways. We would never say, okay, here's the gospel plan. You get into the kingdom through forgiveness but then you dwell in the kingdom by living according to another kingdom's principles. So you're forgiven, you're a member of the kingdom, but now live according to the kingdom of this world and do whatever you want. By the way, you're kind of a little king yourself. We would never say that. 
We can only say, according to the terms of the gospel and the truth of Scripture, and especially what Matthew is teaching us, that though we have entered the kingdom through forgiveness, we dwell in the kingdom through obedience. That's not to say, again, that when we disobey, we get kicked out. It is to say that it is incongruent and not the will of God and not what the kingdom is meant to look like, that we live however we want as members of the kingdom. That's not living in the kingdom. That's falling on the wrong side of kingdoms and conflict and make-believing to be king. We dwell in the kingdom through obedience. A couple verses here to help us think it through again. In entering the kingdom, we are delivered. It's the only way to get into the kingdom. We can't force our way in. We can't buy our way in. We have to be saved, rescued, delivered. Colossians chapter 1. For he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness, another kingdom, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There it is, two kingdoms in conflict. But we've been rescued, we've been delivered, we've been saved. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We enter the kingdom through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In entering, we are delivered from sin, In dwelling, we are to live in freedom from sin. In entering, we are delivered from sin. In dwelling, we are to live in freedom from sin. Look at the wonderful words of Romans chapter 6. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin. Someone say, thank you again, Jesus. For when we died with Christ, right, by putting our faith in him, identifying with his work on the cross, we were set free from the power of sin. Say it again. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. Okay, this is kingdom in conflict language. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Kingdom of heaven. So you also, here it is, okay? So you also then should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Okay, look at this language because this is really, really hard. But this is some of the most wonderful language in Scripture. Look what it says in verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Pause right there. Let's talk about that for a moment. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Let me tell you why I think this is so important because this is wonderfully good news for humanity. This is wonderfully good news for for the Christian. This is diametrically opposed to the value system of the kingdom of the world. I want to be very sensitive here. Please listen to me and don't misunderstand. I want to be very sensitive. I understand the realities of addiction. I understand the power of certain things. 
but we must hear the scriptures when it says that Jesus has broke the power of sin through his work on the cross. Therefore, the scriptures would enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God when it says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in. Here's what our culture does. It gives us license to let and to give in because it gives us a false identity and a false kingdom. Instead of saying it's sin that only Jesus can deliver us from and break the power from and you can have victory over it by the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead of saying that, it says you are only ever and will always be an addict. So we begin to live out of an identity from an addict. And what does an addict do? An addict does it over and over again. That's the definition. In Christ, we have a new identity. The power of sin is broken. So we actually have a choice. Do not let sin control the way you live and do not give in. It never says it's easy, but it says it's real. And this is kingdoms and conflict because the kingdom of this world would always have you in bondage to what it now calls addictions, almost anything. I'm not denying that those are real. I'm just telling you this is real. That Christ has broken the power of sin. And so for the Christian, this is only for the Christian then. For the Christian who has entered the kingdom through forgiveness, who is now endeavoring to live out the Christian life, which means to dwell, we now have a choice. That's what it says. Don't let sin control the way you live. Continuing on. Do not let, same language, any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. You see, that's, that's the problem right there. We, we often don't do that. Give ourselves completely to God because we maintain these little places of rule and reign and sovereignty where we refuse Christ, his lordship. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you are dead but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Listen to these wonderful words in verse 14. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not, you idiot. It doesn't say that there. I added that. The Holy Word of God doesn't say that. I said that. It says, of course not. And then it continues. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose? There's that language again. You become the slave of whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, but it leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to to righteous living. Thank God. Once, you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching that we have given you. You see, the scriptures in the gospel story in Matthew chapter two are clear. We are not meant to be kings. 
We were once slaves, but we have been delivered. We have been set free. We have a new identity and a new life. We are members of the kingdom meant to dwell under the righteous rule of the king. So when we find ourselves living in the tension, does anybody identify with the tension? Am I the only one that feels it? When we feel this internal and external battle between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of of heaven, it's good to know that there are two roads you can go by. You can slip back into the way of being the conniving king or you can hear the invitation of the text to join with the magi, the wise men, who worshipped Jesus. And we, we worship Jesus best by obeying Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commands. It wasn't an easy thing. It's a great exchange. Christ died in our place for us that we might have new life, the power of sin being broken for us. God has given us his Holy Spirit to live in us, which is the power of God for new life and righteous living. It's no small thing. I'm not saying it's a simple little thing. Just don't do bad things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we have been redeemed with the imperishable blood of the Lamb. So the best thing that we can do is offer ourselves as living sacrifices to live under the kingship of the king. Remember the book of Revelation? All of heaven is singing. Glory to him who sits on the throne. And in chapter 4, there's the 24 elders who are representative of the church, the people in the kingdom and they have little crowns on their head. And they fall down, and they throw their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And they say, worthy are you. So we ask ourselves at the end, where do we need to submit? We need to remember that when we struggle with submission, that the king is right. The world will tell you the king is wrong, but the king is right. Where do we need to submit? Where is a real struggle to, to relinquish some of our sovereignty and rule and reign? Just remember, the king is right. Put that on the screen, Renny. Second thing we need to ask ourselves is where do you need to trust? It's at the end of my notes, Renny. Where do you need to trust? The king is good. Listen to me. Satan And the world will try to tell us that the king isn't good. And so when we're struggling with trust because our children are sick or our hearts are broken or our our little kingdoms have crumbled, we have to remember the declaration of Scripture, surely God is good. The king is good. We can trust the king. It would have been better in the garden if we had trusted the king. It would have been better so many times in my life if I had trusted the king. It would have been better for Herod if he had trusted the real and better king. Where do we need to repent? The king is merciful. 
the king is merciful. When Peter in the book of Acts was preaching and showing them that, listen, this Jesus whom you crucified, that was the king, man. It says that they begin to freak out and they said, what should we do? What should we do? The people begin to say, we killed the king. Peter said, repent. The times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. The king is merciful. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And finally, where do we need deliverance? Sometimes we just need to be saved. Maybe some of you here today, ultimately, need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, be forgiven of your sins and enter the kingdom, be saved. And begin to live in the kingdom under the rule and the grace and the love of God. For the rest of us, we, this sin thing can be tough. And so we need to remember when we need deliverance, that the king is strong. The king is strong. He is stronger than any addiction. He is stronger than anything that may have us bound. He is stronger than any loss, better than any disappointment. Wherever we need deliverance, the king is strong. So bring your bondage to the king. And show him what needs to be broken. The king is strong. Jesus, thank you that you are that king who delivers us, who is merciful to us, who is good and right. Thank you, Lord that all those things would be manifest in our time now of worshiping and reflecting. Holy Spirit, please help us to identify places where we're bound and we need deliverance. And set us free today, Lord. Thank you for the prayer team that's up here, mighty in prayer. Would you give it us boldness to get out of our seats and come and be prayed for and to say, I'm bound in this area. I need to be delivered here. I feel trapped here. And Jesus, we believe you'll set us free. Thank you that as we repent today and take postures of repentance and get on our face before you and so on and so forth, thank you, King Jesus, that you're merciful. Flood us with grace and mercy, Lord. Surely you're good and you're right. Holy Spirit, help us to identify where we've been wrong and where we struggle with trusting. And Holy Spirit, exalt this great and glorious King in our lives that we would not fear the loss of our own kingdoms, but we would joyfully throw our crowns at the feet of the one true King. We ask it in Jesus' name.